So today I want to start with something uh, a little bit fun. Uh, I I think I do this every year, but I always like to look at Forbes' list of the 100 most powerful people in the world. Does anyone else sort of get sucked into those types of things? I love lists. I love top 10 lists. If I'm bored, sometimes I'll just look up random top 10 lists. It's true, Uh, especially about sports, but that's another story just to see if I agree with things. But I want to show you uh, three lists of three people, and I want you to guess who made Forbes' list of the 100 most powerful people in the world. So here's the, here's the first grouping of three. It starts with this guy, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, he might have made it. You can see him up there. Um, how about this guy, Bill Gates? Maybe. I know I see some of the wheels are turning. Here's choice number three, Jeff Foxworthy. Now let's wait. I'll let you think about that. We'll, we'll vote later. All right, here's another group of three. Oh, my gosh. Uh, here is Xi Jinping, very powerful man, leader of China. Uh, we have here Oprah Winfrey, very powerful person indeed. And number three of your choice is Phil Robertson. You guys know this guy? Duck Dynasty? <laughs> Oh, man, (laughs) you're hoping he's not on the list. I can tell there's not a lot of fans here. Okay, here comes the last grouping of three. Here's Mark Zuckerberg. Heard of him? Yeah, founder of Facebook. Uh, Here's another guy you might have heard of, Pope Francis. Powerful dude. And uh, your third choice, who's this guy? Larry the Cable Guy. (laughs) What? What? Made, get, get her done. Okay. You guys are saying things I don't know. That's all right. So six of these folks made Forbes' list of the 100 most powerful people in the world over the past several years. Three didn't. Which three do you think missed the list? Who? Jeff Foxworthy. Okay. Yes. Uh, you can see a theme there. Uh, you may laugh. But the reason I'm doing this is because it is a historical fact that 2,000 plus years ago, a small band of mostly uneducated, ignorant men and women from a marginal class, of a marginal group of people in the Roman Empire set out to change the world. And I know in Philadelphia, when we see people that are sometimes referred to, well, or even by themselves as rednecks, we city folk tend to think, ah, those people, some of us, maybe not all of us. But it's a historical fact that the rednecks of the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, people considered backwoods, provincial, hicks, if you will, because they came from the sticks, known as a place called Galilee, and had low-class accents. But within 200 years, their movement became the most powerful force in the Roman Empire. And now, 2,000 years later, more people ascribe to their spiritual perspective than any other in the world. They changed the world. And the fact that you're in this room today, over 2,000 years later, listening to me speak about some of the things that they wrote proves that they had some really, really significant impact. How did they do it? How did they do it? Well, today's passage that we was read before as our service started, tells the story of how these provincial folks from the backwoods were empowered in a pretty amazing way that changed the course of world history. 
I'll read it again, just so you know what I'm talking about. This is Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthian, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans. Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So something happens in this passage that turns the disrespected Galileans. And notice that the people are amazed, not just that they're hearing their own language, but that they're hearing it from Galileans. Into world-changing movers and shakers. Now, let's look a little more closely about this. You probably have a few ideas just from hearing the story. But let's look at it more specifically. How did the first Christians, backwards people, marginalized people, people that were made fun of by the city folk in Jerusalem, how did they change the world? Well, one important thing is that they experienced the future now. Now, to understand this, I think it's helpful to understand the context of this meeting that they're all part of. So you notice it says that this happened on the day of Pentecost. And it's quite likely that there's a good bit of symbolism in the timing of this occurrence. So Pentecost is called Pentecost, kind of a big word, because it comes 50 days after the Jewish holiday of Passover. Penta means five or 50. It's also referred to as the Feast of First Fruits. And it marks the beginning of the barley harvest. And it's a time for thanking God, not just for that day's harvest, but for the rest of the harvest that's still to come. And this, I think, has particular significance when you consider Peter's explanation of what is actually happening here. So the people who witness this, uh, they don't know what to think of it. And so Peter stands up and says, fellow Jews and all of you live in Jerusalem. And then he says, this is what's happening. And he quotes Joel, who says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out My spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And here, Peter explains what is happening by explaining that in the last days, that's what he says, God promised to pour out his spirit, and this is what you're seeing. So what this means is that the people of Jerusalem were experiencing what theologians call to as, get ready for this, an eschatological event. You like that? So forgive me for using such a crazy big word, 
eschatological simply just means what is to come or how everything will play out in the end, the ultimate future. That's what eschatological means. So Peter is saying that the crowd is witnessing the future now. The promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people at the end of time is happening right now. But instead of this outpouring being the literal end of time when heaven comes to earth, it's rather a taste of what's to come, a deposit, a down payment, or catch this, the first fruits of heaven on earth. Just as Pentecost is the festival, the day of celebration of first fruits. And this way of thinking is seen in other parts of the Bible as well. So in Romans 8, where the early church father, a guy named Paul, describes the current status of the world, he makes the point that all of creation is suffering from decay. It's in the phrasing he uses, it's that it's groaning, waiting for renewal. Everything is running down. And we can see this in our lives. So um, I don't get to as much now, but occasionally I get to play softball. And I've noticed now that I'm 42, if there's a double header, and you know, softball, as in baseball, there's some running, right? There's some movement, you know, and you swing a bat a few times in the course of a day, but it's not constant. In fact, a lot of softball leagues, I, 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 you know, people have a beverage at their feet when they're playing in the outfield, to give you an idea. <laughs> And after a doubleheader, for the next two or three days, like all of a sudden I'm like getting in the car and lifting my legs in one at a time. I have this thing going on. I've mentioned this once before, some of my friends, uh, which I, I mistakenly refer to as the gray brow because this funny thing is now happening with my eyebrows in that it's not really fair to call it a gray brow experience because it's actually white and spindly, and these <laughs> eyebrows go crazy, like Mark Twain or something, like, I don't know, like, crazy, like this, okay? And every time I get my hair cut, I have to get my eyebrows cut. Is that lame or what? True story. That's what's happening. Um, the law of entropy tells us that everything is headed towards disorder, And those who study the universe, they say that eventually the universe will run out of energy. Everything is decaying. Everything is moaning. Everything is groaning. But Paul has an answer for this. And in Romans 8, Paul says that all this decay will be renewed, but in an interesting way. So creation, he says, is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. And he says that they have, get this, the first fruits of the Spirit of God. They already have a bit of the future now. In other words, the possibility here is to have the power through the Spirit of God to stem the tide of decay. That's real. That's difference-making. It's enough to change the world. But it's only a taste. It's eschatological. It's a taste of something that's to come. See, the first fruits are meant to be the beginning of it all, of the renewal of all things. They're a down payment. They're an appetizer, a spark that kindles a bigger change. And to taste this 
is to begin to be grown for the is to begin is 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 to begin to groan for the renewal of everything around you. It doesn't fix everything all at once, but it sure creates even more hunger to see things renewed. Last week, I think I mentioned uh, all the praying and crazy, passionate investment and in wanting to see the Spirit of God come to the school that I attended and uh, not seeing it but groaning, longing. And I think I had in my mind, if, I, if the Spirit of God would just fall on the campus that I was at, that would be it. But I didn't realize the Spirit coming is often the beginning, not the end. That brings transformation, but also hunger for more. An appetizer, a first fruit. And so this idea of the future breaking into the present is something that we've talked about before. It's not a new idea. It may be very familiar to some of you today. And our passage today makes something very clear, though, that I want to take special note of. You notice that in this passage, that the future breaking into the present through the Holy Spirit, it's not primarily a theological idea or religion or philosophy or strategy. So the early Christians are not transformed on the day of Pentecost because Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit finally sunk in, or because they finally understood the strategy of relying on the Holy Spirit to live life. Understanding these things by themselves ultimately aren't going to make the difference for them. Instead, they're transformed because they come into direct contact with the filling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that they believe Jesus' doctrine of the kingdom of God. In the chapter before this, Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples and his followers, just teaching them all about the kingdom of God and saying, look, here's what it is. We don't know all that he said to them because it's not written down, but we know he spent a long time after his resurrection when people definitely would have been paying attention, definitely would have been listening, definitely would have been open to taking it all in. And then he says, now, Go out into the world? No. He says, now don't do anything. Please wait here in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, which I'm promising you. I've had all this teaching from him, all this great theology, all this mentoring. And he says, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one that can take anything that they learned and make it real and vibrant and difference-making. They needed to experience the Holy Spirit. They needed more than the doctrine of the future now. They needed more than to hear a sermon like this one. They needed to experience the future now. That's what changed them. That's what empowered them. The Spirit combined with whatever Jesus taught them. So they experienced the Holy Spirit personally. You can see that in this passage, I think. It says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Each person in that room individually experienced the Holy Spirit personally. And this was different than being able to see and experience God, say, like in a sunset or in the smile of a baby or a child. Those are great and meaningful things. This was a literal experience of the God who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's another context of this passage 
Another context of Pentecost I think can help us understand the significance of this experience. So the celebration of Pentecost lines up on the calendar with the day that Moses received the law. Some of you might remember this story or seen movies about it. You ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments? I was, we're, we're actually prepping to do a series on the Ten Commandments over the summer, and so I got sort of sucked into these old, like, there's an old black and white silent film, which I watched part of, probably need that time back, but um, <laughs> couldn't help myself, and there's the famous Charlton Heston movie, and there's animated film, and things like that, but that event of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai lines up on the calendar with Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And for this reason, the Israelites came eventually to celebrate the giving of the law or the joy of the law at Pentecost. And if you compare the two stories here of uh, the early church on the day of Pentecost and uh, Moses on Mount Sinai, there's a lot of surprising parallels. So uh, when God's Spirit descended on Mount Sinai to give the law, loud noises thundered around the mountain. At the same time, the mountain was encased by smoke and fire. In our story today, when the Spirit of God comes, there's a sound of violent wind and tongues of fire come and rest on the people who are gathered. But there's one really significant difference. At Mount Sinai, no one except for Moses and sometimes Aaron the priest were allowed up the mountain and into God's actual presence. But in this story, God's spirit is poured out on each and every individual. As Peter explains it, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Rich, poor, backwoods, city, Every ethnic group was there. And this is a new opportunity that's beginning, a great shift from God only giving his spirit to a few certain people to making his spirit spirit available to everyone. And so this is good news for everyone in this room. This This means that each person in this room can experience the transcendent. And that's important. You know, a lot of people were writing oh, a couple decades ago, sort of in the wake of this period of history that's sort of winding down or has wound down, called the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, and many famous philosophers, doctors, commentators predicted that with the Age of Enlightenment would also come the end of religion. The Age of Enlightenment focused on reason, what we can ascertain, the scientific method. The thought that was as people became more educated, as we learned more and more about the universe, as new technologies developed and flourished, that we would shed our need for religion. Religion, after all, was for neurotics and uneducated people. But as we move into a new era, a new century, researchers are finding out that there is still a common hunger for transcendental, for transcendental experience, for touching the transcendent. The Pew Research Center is famous for studying these things. And I read an article this week that came out in 2016 that said that uh, they reported that Americans may be getting less religious, but feelings of, quote, spirituality are on the rise. So it said this, among U.S. Christians, 
There's been an increase of seven percentage points between 2007 and 2014 in the share who say they feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe, at least weekly. So that went from 38% to 45%. And there's been a similar rise in the share of religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns like Catholic nun, but like N-O-N. Nuns are people who don't identify with anything, don't claim any particular affiliation to any particular religious group. There's been a rise uh, similar to that in nuns who say the same from 39 to 47%. Not to mention a 17-point jump among self-described atheists. People are actually getting more hungry to experience something bigger than themselves. And studies like this indicate that as we've progressed, our hunger for deep spiritual connection and meaning, even in the secular West, has not waned. Have you experienced something like this, where you touch something bigger than yourself that you know isn't just what's normal, that's transcendent, where the world becomes bigger, the universe becomes bigger, that blows your mind? Have you had experiences like that? It doesn't have to look like what we see in this passage where people If you read the rest of the Bible, people are filled with the Holy Spirit in all kinds of different ways. There's no wind or fiery tongues. Have you supernaturally encountered God? You know, Christianity, when it's lived out like this, is is something different. It's not turning your brain off. It's not pretending that the age of enlightenment never happened and we never discovered new things and new technologies and sent people to the moon and have the internet and we can be connected to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Not pretend like none of those things are true or stop thinking. You know, Jesus spent 40 days with his followers teaching them, teaching them, and teaching them. I think what we're seeing here is a faith that is too rational for mystics and sometimes too mystic for rationalists. Instead, it's like, I I heard a sermon by Tim Keller, and he put it this way. He says, a deep experience of rationally held truth. This, I think, is what Jesus' followers experience on Pentecost. It's as if they live with their feet on the ground and their head in the clouds. And this is what this passage communicates is possible. And I think this is a hunger that we all have. To touch something bigger. And this passage says that you can have transcendence. You can connect powerfully and meaningfully with God. But it happens in an interesting context, and that's this. They experience the Holy Spirit in community. There's a big, big theme here about unity, being together, connecting with people who are different from you. It says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And this is important to realize because As I read the study results that I'm reading, many of the people who study religious trends were talking about a new category of people who are spiritual, not spirit, but not religious nuns, meaning they're folks that uh, are hungry for spiritual reality, but skeptical, and here's the point, of organized structures. You know, in my line of work, I end up speaking with a lot of people who, for one reason or another, are very interested in spiritual things, 
but not interested in any form of organized religion. And personal spirituality can seem safer, and community can sometimes feel like a risk. And for some of you in this room, I know your stories a bit, you've actually felt hurt or judged or excluded by communities in the past, particularly religious communities, religious cultures. And it makes sense that we would at least be cynical about joining up with or investing in a spiritual community again. Some of you, I know your stories, and I can't believe you're in this room, honestly, with what you've been through. Some of you, the only picture you've ever seen of organized spirituality is unattractive. And you think, why would I ever want to get involved with anything like that? I'll keep my distance. I'll do my own thing. But remember, the hope of the Spirit, and listen to this, and what comes with touching the transcendent is the future now. We've been talking about that. But the future, where things are headed, is not to an isolated individual place. You know, when the, first, when the church father, John, had a vision of where everything's going, he described it like this. He said, after this, I looked out, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. The Lamb is a symbol for Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When heaven comes to earth, when the final future arrives, this is what it's going to look like. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language worshiping God together in unity, in community, crying out in unity in a loud voice worship songs. So is it any wonder that when Jesus gives Jesus' followers a taste of the future now, that this first miracle comes with the miracle of tongues, where Galilean Jews are supernaturally empowered to worship God in the languages of the world. And the Holy Spirit fell on a group of people that were gathered together to empower them to gather more people from every background together into communal worship. I think there's some commentary here and some hope that where we're heading is not what you've seen on TV about Christianity, that where you're heading isn't even what you've experienced negatively sometimes. There's a power in unity. There's a power in diverse people coming together. And that's where it's headed. And I think the message here is worth it. It's worth it. You can taste some of that now. And some of you haven't tasted it. You've tasted the opposite. And it's only by the grace of God that you're even here this morning. I think the message of this passage is the Holy Spirit reaching out to you and saying, hang in there. You live in a broken world where the future isn't now and you've experienced some of the not yet but there's already just around the corner if you can hang in there. 
this is where things are headed. And we live in a really diverse part of the city. People gathered here come from a lot of different backgrounds. We're going to have some really amazing already moments. We're going to really mess it up sometimes. Hurt people's feelings. Say stupid things. Need to learn a lot more about each other. But our hope is that we're moving towards this experience of life that's transcendent, that goes beyond the best that you've experienced already. That's why it's worth it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this place today? Would our songs of praise be filled with moments of the future now that fill us now, but also fill our lives? That power transformation, extra grace when we need it for ourselves and each other. We're in this world, we're in over our heads. We're totally in over our heads. These Galilean backwoods folks were in over their heads. And you were the difference. So by grace, may we just start with a knee bowed, a heart humbled. May we not stand on what we've learned but hope in who you are. And may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.